their favorite psalm is Psalm 15. Uh, Who can dwell with the Lord on high on his holy mountain? And then it answers that question. And that's a good one for the Jewish people. But for us, Psalm 23 has got to be one of the best known. I want to approach it from a little bit of a different viewpoint. Uh, People read it devotionally most of the time, but I want us to look at it as a an actual historical document. Uh, All the verbs in the 23rd Psalm, all the verbs are past tense. Uh, I said it wrong. All the verbs are continuing action. There's only one verb that's past tense. Got it right that time. Problem is my stomach's full and I think all my digestion stuff is interfering with what's going on up here, which may not be much, but uh, uh, Psalm 23 is present continuing action verbs, incomplete actions going on all the time, except for one verb, and that's the verb where he says, you have anointed my head with oil. That's past tense. And a lot of people read this psalm, and they assume that David wrote this when he was a shepherd when he was a young man. But the indication in the psalm itself is that he wrote it when he was an old man. And he's looking back over his life. And the psalm is actually an outline of his life. And years ago, uh, before I had any sense at all, I was driving my, my VW Bug, and there was nobody on the road, and I was reading the 23rd Psalm, had it up on the steering wheel, you know, almost as stupid as texting, but not quite. And uh, so I was reading the 23rd Psalm, and it suddenly hit me that this is is, uh, an outline of David's life. And you can look at it, and then you can also apply it to us, but let's take the time to look at this psalm. Uh, I was reading it in the Hebrew text. The Hebrew text is... uh, clearer in in many ways, and yet ambiguous in other ways. Um, Here's what it sounds like. Uh, Yahweh ro'i, lo echsar, binot deshe yarbitseni, almei menuchot yinahaleni, nafshi yishovev, and it goes on from there. Uh, The Lord, my shepherd, there's no verb. It's just a continuing relationship between David as a sheep and the Lord, his shepherd. And the reason God connects us with sheep, you know, we're called, uh, the psalm says, uh, it is he who has created us. We are the sheep of his pasture. Uh, people are compared to sheep all the way through the Bible because sheep are stupid and sheep can't protect themselves. And people are the same way. We're fragile. And Psalm 103 says, The Lord remembers that we were made of dust. You know, we're not permanent, we're temporary. Uh, except for those of us who believe and follow Jesus, then that'll be changed. According to Paul, in the twinkling of an eye, the mortal will put on immortality, and the fragile will become unfragile. You know, will become incorruptible. And so, when we look at this psalm, 
you think about this relationship between the sheep and the shepherd. In, in America, Americans usually have dogs that drive the sheep and herd the sheep. But in Israel, I saw, when I was down near the Dead Sea, I saw uh, a shepherd on the hills with a bunch of sheep following along behind him. And the shepherd will go through his rounds, and the sheep will follow him, and he usually is singing or humming or speaking to the sheep. And they know his voice, and they follow him. And Jesus uses that imagery in John chapter 10. You have to connect Psalm 23 with John 10. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. My sheep know my voice. And they follow me because they, they know my voice, and they will not follow someone else because they don't recognize that other person's voice. Now, Jesus is the good shepherd. And so here is the relationship, again, between the sheep and shepherd. It's very clear. And so God the Father, Yahweh, is a personal relationship word, the name that, that God gave Moses out of the bush. Uh, Yahweh, you can always tell because it's capitalized all the way through in your Bibles. You can always tell that the Hebrew word behind that is a personal name for God. Yahweh, my shepherd, I will never lack. Now, some translations say I will never want or I will, uh, I will not be in want. But it means I will never lack anything. All that I need, he will take care of. Now, let me give you a four-point outline for the psalm because it's easy to remember this way. And I finally figured out a way to do it with alliteration, you know, where you start every word with the same letter. Uh, the first verses are prepare. God prepares David. Uh, the second is protect. God protected David. The third is provision. God provides for David. And the fourth is promises. God has promises for David. So prepare, protect, provide, and promise. I will never lack. He causes me, this, this actually says, He causes me to stretch out in pastures of green grass. Now here's the picture of the sheep. He's been grazing. And sheep are ruminants like cattle. They have two stomachs. They have a, a rumen and a stomach. And uh, when they digest their food, their food, some of it comes back up in their mouth to be rechewed. And so they sit under a tree or someplace and chew their cud, and their digestion takes longer than ours. Uh, I remember uh, in a church that my wife and I were in in Illinois, we had an old guy that was a very unusual character. Most, most uh, veterinarians are unusual characters, and this guy was one of them. And he came by and beat on the side of my trailer and said, I want you to go with me. I want to show you something. So we went down into the bottoms, the creek bottoms out in the country. And uh, there's a guy that had called him that said, my cattle are all swollen up. They'd gotten into some green acorns. And when they ate them, the acorns wouldn't digest. And so we got out of the car and these, these cattle had their feet spread out and their eyes were crossed and... They were swollen, huge, great big bodies. And he said, I want you to see this. And he took his lighter out and held it under his uh, knife 
went over and felt along the backbone of that animal, took the knife and plunged it in, and then moved his head to the side and turned the knife. And when he did, it was a geyser that came out of the side of that cow. And the cow just went, you know, just, just you know, slowly went down. Uh, he had released the pressure. And that cow, you could hear the cow go, oh, you know, it was, just felt so good. <laughs> and I watched him do that to several of them. Uh, weird, you know, situation. But it's because they got into something and then they drank water, and when they drink water after they get into this stuff, it washes it through into the other stomach, and they can't get rid of the gas that comes off of that. And so anyway, uh, he makes me lie down in green pastures. God causes the sheep to stretch out and rest after they've eaten. One of the best things in the world for you is to take a quick nap after you've eaten, to rest after you eat. I take naps after I eat, before I eat, in the middle of eating. <laughs> I might conk off right here in front of you today. <clears throat> and then he leads me beside waters, causing stillness. Now, that's not what the English says, but that's what the Hebrew says. Waters that cause stillness. In other words, it's waters that are restful to the sheep. You've probably been beside water like that at one time or another. There's something about water and the moving of water. If it's not real swift and real uh, rushed, uh, it's very relaxing. And sheep are so bullient, they, they uh, will, uh, uh, if you get them in a river that's fast moving, they'll just bob up and go away. You know, the water will just take them away. But if they go down into uh, water that is slowly moving, it's restful to them, and uh, that's what this means. He causes me to stretch out in pastures of green grass, and then, after that, he leads me besides waters that cause quietness in me. He restores my soul. Throughout all this process, God restores the nature of man, the soul. The soul, in Hebrew thinking, is the body with the spirit in it. If you remember when God created man, he made him out of dust. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. So the soul is the body with the spirit in it. Animals are also living souls. And what makes us different from the animals is we're made in the image of God. The animals were not made in the image of God. God never got down by an animal and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. So he restores my soul, my body, my spirit together. He guides me in the paths of righteousness or the right paths for his name's sake. In other words, what he does for me is really for him. I can look back over my life, and I know David could look back over his life, and you can probably look back over your life and see that God has led you in places that would bring glory to him. And this is really what we're here for. We are created for two reasons. We exist as human beings for two reasons. To share and love with people and to share and love God. And that's, that's what this is about. It's for his namesake that he has led us. And then go on. 
uh, now we're talking, we've been talking about God's preparing David by David being a shepherd and, sh- and shepherding the sheep of Israel and uh, David's uniqueness as a shepherd is brought up several times in Scripture, and then to refer to God as his shepherd, you know, it's like Peter saying that he is a shepherd of the sheep, but he is responsible to the chief shepherd, as we all are. And now we're going to talk about God protecting David. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. The first thing we find out about David is he's a shepherd. The second thing we find out about David is in the 17th chapters of 1 Samuel where he goes to visit. His dad sent him with two bushels of grain and some cheese and some wine uh, to visit the war between Israel and the Philistines. The Philistines are the perennial enemy of Israel. They were so hard to beat because they had iron Their Iron Age and their ability to smelt iron was far ahead of the Israelites. They were still in the Bronze Age. The Philistines came from the island of Crete, and they had warships, and they were uh, violent people. And, of course, they also produced a race of giants. There were many countries around Israel that produced giants. And by giants, I don't mean guys that are like Shaquille O'Neal. You know, if, if Shaquille O'Neal were here, I'm about 6'1". If Shaquille O'Neal were here, he would be this tall. But if Goliath was standing by Shaquille O'Neal, Shaquille O'Neal would look littler than I do next to Shaquille. Now, I want you to think about that. Here's a guy, seven foot, Shaquille's a little over seven feet tall and weighs 330 pounds. Goliath was nine and a half feet tall. Now, that's the smallest measurement. It goes by the cubit. The cubit is from here to here. This is how they measured in those days. My cubit is 18 inches. So if I was six cubits in a span, that's a span right there from there to there. That's six or eight inches. That's how tall Goliath is. He's six cubits in a span. That's nine and a half feet. But if you go by the king's cubit, which most measuring was supposed to be done by, Saul was the king of Israel, and he was head and shoulders above everybody else in Israel. So his cubit would have been bigger. So the scholars say this is a man who's nine foot six to eleven foot four. Imagine having him on your basketball team. You know, he could take the basketball hoop like this. I mean, we're talking about a giant of a man. They recommend that if he was nine foot six, he weighed between eight hundred and twelve hundred pounds. Now, I've got a guy in my church that's six foot ten, skinny as a rail. He's eighty-one years old, and he weighs two hundred and twenty pounds, skinny as a rail. He weighs that much because he's so tall. Imagine being nine foot six and a warrior. He wears a chainmail vest. Goliath, 151 pounds. He has a weaver's beam, which is two and a half inch thick, for his spear. And on the end of it, a 19 pound spearhead. 
Now, I don't know what the world's record is. I think it's 74 feet or something like that for a 16-pound shot put. But imagine being so big that you have a spear that is a vast length, very heavy, with a nine-pound, I mean, a 19-pound steel or or iron head. He had a shield-bearer that carried his shield and struggled under the weight of it. And here's David. The next thing that happens in his life, he goes to meet his brothers and see how they're doing, bring back a token to his dad about the brothers. His father's name was Jesse. His older brother, Eliab, all of them were older. David was the eighth son of Jesse. And uh, the two sons of Jesse that were in the battle heard David say when Goliath came out and said, You send a champion down here and fight me. And if he wins, we'll be your slaves. And if I win, you'll be our slaves. And he had done this for 40 days. And David said, Who's this uncircumcised Philistine think he is railing at the armies of the living God? And his brother heard him say that and said, I know why you're here. You just came to watch the war. David said, what have I said? And he turned to somebody else and said the same thing. And they took him to Saul. And Saul said, son, you can't fight Goliath. You know, Saul's the biggest man in Israel. Maybe he could have, but he wasn't about to go down there. And David said, look, a lion came against my father's flocks and took a lamb. And when I would chase him down, he would turn and stand up against me. And he said, when he got close to me, I would grab his beard and kill him with my rod. And he said, a bear came against my father's flock, and I chased him down, and when he stood, I grabbed his beard and killed him. Now, this is not some wimpy little kid. But Saul said, well, take my armor, son. So he tried it on. The Bible says he couldn't walk. So he took it back off, and he said, I'm not, I'm not skilled at, at this. He went down, picked up some round stones out of a brook on the way down into the theater of war, down into the Valley of Elah. Here it's called the Valley of the Shadow of Death. And he picks up these stones and puts them in his wallet and takes one of them and puts it in his sling. Now, when I talk about a sling, I'm not talking about this kind of a sling. How many of you have had a sling? You've had one, Leah. I had one about this long. I made it out of a Levi's pocket. I folded it over twice, folded it, uh, sewed it together, cut a hole in it so the rock wouldn't fall out and set the rock in there. I tied one string around my middle finger, held the other string, and I could go, I could take a step forward and turn that thing and throw it like that. And boom, you could hear it. It sounded like a bullet going off. And I could throw rocks almost as big around as my fist. And I could throw a rock a quarter of a mile on the railroad tracks and hit, uh, there were some uh, water tanks. And I could hear this bong come back. I won't tell you about the the, uh, greenhouse. It was a little ways off the railroad tracks. And a dare that took place on the railroad tracks. And uh, the... The rock sailed off that way, and we sailed off that way. But anyway, uh, they, you know, this is a real implement of army of uh, uh, war. The, the uh, slingers were in the center of the army 
of Benjamin, the Benjaminite army, were all slingers. And there were 400 of them. And they were left-handed. Well, I don't know whether David was left or right-handed, but he knew how to use a sling. He'd probably been out there with all those rocks. The Jews have a, 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 thing, a story that they wrote in their Talmud. It's included in the Talmud, which is the commentary in the Old Testament, that when God created the universe, he gave two angels a bag of rocks. One angel got the rest of the world, and one angel got Israel. There's so many rocks in Israel, you would not believe it. Of course, those guys have never been to Arizona or West Texas, but there are a lot of rocks. And there are little bitty rocks. And all the places where they have vineyards, there's probably 100,000 man-hours of people picking up rocks and moving them out to the edge of the area so that the, the soil won't wash away. Uh, rocks everywhere. And so David, I'm sure, had tremendous amount of time watching the sheep. He could practice with his with his uh, sling. And so he's on his way down into the valley. And Goliath sees him. And he says, are you coming against me with sticks and stones? I'll grind your flesh into the earth. I'll feed you to the birds and the animals. And David said, you come to me in the name of your gods, but I come into to you with the name of the Lord God of Israel. And today I will kill you and cut off your head. And he slung the rock. Whoo, hit him right here, right in the center of the forehead. And left a blue hole right in the middle of his forehead. And Goliath crashed to his knees and to his face. And David ran up and took that giant sword of his and go, whoosh, cut his head off and dragged it all the way back up to Saul. And when David cut that giant's head off, imagine that head's probably this big. Uh, the Israelites gave a shout and ran across the valley and chased the Philistines all the way back to their hometowns, including the town of Gath, where Goliath had come from. Now, this is what he means here when he says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. I'm not afraid of this Goliath. I faced a lion and a bear. Why would this guy be any different? He knew what he could do with that sling, and he also knew what God wanted him to do. And so he says, though I walk through the valley of the deep gloom, I will never fear evil, for you are with me. See, he starts out talking about the Lord. There's so many psalms that do this. He says, Yahweh is my shepherd. He starts out talking about the Lord, and then he starts talking to the Lord. And that's why the Psalms are called Tehillim in Hebrew, prayers, because they all end up seeming to be prayers. You are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You know, God can protect David. The staff is used to keep the sheep in line, and the rod is used to kill the enemies of the sheep. David sees that in God. So God has protected him through that war. I can't imagine what kind of faith it would take to face a guy that's that size, who has been a warrior from his youth. The word that's used in Hebrew for what Goliath is, he's called a champion in our Bibles. The, the Hebrew word means the man between the ranks. In other words, he's considered a whole rank of soldiers. 
You have two ranks here, and then he's the man between. Third, God provides for David. The next thing that happens in David's life, you remember what happened after he killed Goliath? The women started singing. Saul killed his thousands. David his ten thousands, and Saul became jealous. And Saul had a demon that came to him and messed with him. And Saul was raging in his tent, and they would send David in to play an instrument and to sing. And that's part of where these psalms come from. And when David would play the instrument and sing, Saul would calm down sometimes. But twice he took his javelin and tried to pin David to the wall. David eluded him twice, and the second time he realized, this man is trying to kill me. And he went out and hid in the caves of Ephraim. And all the malcontents and debtors who couldn't pay their debts in Israel came out and joined David. So he's kind of like a, a Robin Hood. He's got a band of angry men with him. And a man named Joab is his commander. And so David had been out in the field for a long time, and they'd run out of food. So he sent to uh, emissaries to a man named Nabal, Nabal, to ask him if they could have a couple of his sheep. And if you know that story, there are, there are five Hebrew words for fool. The one called Nabal is, literally means a corpse. Now, this is a very evil person. It's the Nabal who says there is no God. And when he insulted David's emissaries and sent them back empty, David said, all right, guys, gird your sword on. So they were going to go kill him. And they're on their way to Nabal's house when Abigail, Nabal's wife, met them. And she had two baskets of parched corn, and she had uh, wine and cheese and a couple of dressed sheep that had already been killed and were taken care of, hanging over her uh, slaves' donkeys. And uh, when David met her, I think this comes right out of David's mouth, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Right when my enemy can see me, you prepare a table. David ended up marrying Abigail later on. My father is redeemer, is what Abigail means. How she came to be one of Nabal's wives, we don't know. But it says that later on, God killed Nabal. His heart became like a stone and then Nabal died. And when Nabal died, David married Abigail. David ended up with eight wives himself. So you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And then this one verb here, this is the only past tense verb in the psalm. You have anointed my head with oil. Past tense. Do you know that David is the only king of Israel who was anointed three times? He was first anointed by Samuel in a private ceremony uh, with his brothers and his dad. you remember the story when he went to Bethlehem where God sent him and said, Take a horn of oil so you can anoint the one I show you. 
And Eliab came up before him, and here's this handsome, broad-shouldered guy, and Samuel's thinking in his heart, this has got to be the one. And God said, no, stop looking at the outside. Yahweh looks at the heart. And he went through all seven brothers, and not one of them did God say, get up and anoint. And he said, do you not have any other brothers? And he asked Jesse, do you not have any more sons? And he said, well, we have one more. The eighth one's out watching the sheep. It was David. The name David in Hebrew means beloved. The name that God spoke over David, over David and over Jesus at his baptism. This is my son, Hadavid, the David, the beloved. See, Jesus fulfilled David. The real king is Jesus. And you can read Isaiah chapter 11 and see that he is the twig that came out of the stump of Jesse. David and Jesus both are that king. So you have anointed my head with oil. The first time was at his private ceremony with with David's family. The second time was in the city of Hebron. David was, was, uh, you know, here in Texas, down in Texas, they have a place they call Hebron. Well, it's not Hebron over there. It's Hebron. And uh, Hebron is the place that David was king for 11 years. And then, with God's help, he conquered Jerusalem. And Jerusalem became, and he wrote Psalm 68 about that, by the way. Uh, he says, it was a Sinai of holiness, and Adonai was, a, was with me, and uh, he, uh, his chariots were with me. So he believed God helped him conquer Jerusalem. First time the Jebusites had ever been driven out of Jerusalem. The first time that city in the Holy Land had ever been conquered. There were several cities remained unconquered even to David's day. And when David conquered Jerusalem, he was anointed one more time by Nathan the prophet, a third time in the city of Jerusalem. And from that time on, it was called the city of David. Bethlehem and Jerusalem are right next to each other. It's kind of like going from Jinx to Tulsa. You've anointed my head with oil. You know, when they anointed the head, this is a symbol for the spirit washing over someone. And that's, that symbol is used again and again in Scripture. And then he says, my cup overflows. My cup is superabundance. What does cup mean? Father, let this cup pass from me. You know, your cup means your life. It means the portion that you have with God. And so... When he says, my cup overflows, he's saying, my life is overflowing. And then his promise, surely goodness and covenant love will follow me all the days of my life. And literally, I will return to the house of Yahweh forever. And so this is his future. And folks, if you go back and look at this psalm, God prepares us and protects us and provides for us and has promises for us. We have a hope greater than just returning to the house of Yahweh the way David was thinking. 
we have a place to go where we will be home. We have a place to go where we will be given bodies that are eternal. Philippians 3 says, We await a Savior from heaven who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. So we're going to be like Jesus one day. Okay, I've got about 10 minutes, and I would like to go through one other psalm real quickly. If you have questions, be sure to write them down, and I'll come back to whatever questions you have at the end of this. I do want to have a Q&A time if we can at the end. Psalm 46 is the other one I want to look at. It's one of my many favorites in the Psalms. Now, this is written by the sons of Korah. The sons of Korah wrote 12 Psalms. They were probably in the Second Temple area, or the era of the Second Temple, which would be uh, sometime around 500 B.C., after the captivity. So it says, the director of music, the sons of Korah, according to Alamoth, a song. Alamoth is virgins. So there were probably young girls or young boys that sang this uh, in high pitch. And we don't know what the tune was or anything. But this is the, this is the uh, psalm from which Martin Luther wrote Ein Festeburg, uh, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. You know that song. Uh, one of the great songs of the past. All Martin Luther's songs came out of the beer halls he just changed the words did you know that you know drinking songs in Germany drink drink let the toast lie you know uh, if you know the drinking songs you can take Martin Luther's songs and turn them right back into that but it's much better to have Christian words to them look what it says uh, this is a, a kind of a refrain here uh, God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. The word actually means a well-tested help in trouble. In other words, when people are in trouble, they're always turning to the Lord. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth be removed, it literally says. Though the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, Though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. And then there's a musical note, Selah, which means to lift up. Now let me, let me just talk about this a minute. He's talking about a collapse of the earth. He's talking about major change taking places here on the earth. But he hasn't told you yet what he's really talking about. He's saying mountains quake and fall into the heart of the sea, and the sea boils and foams. But he's really not talking about mountains or the sea. How do I know? Read a little farther. A river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. See the difference here? You've got this chaos of mountains falling into the sea and the sea boiling and roaring. And Every time we look at the sea, it's always in motion. Daniel says, A great wind came across the sea in the seventh chapter of Daniel, and it was stirred up, and all these great beasts come up out of the sea, and each of the beasts is an empire. 
Daniel interprets that for us. The sea is human history. We're told that in the book of Revelation. The sea is human history. So what's happening here? All of a sudden he stopped talking about this chaotic sea, and now he talks about a river flowing. This is a symbol also. The river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. Talking about the Holy Spirit flowing out of the throne of God that the book of Revelation speaks of at the end of the book. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at the break of day. In other words, whenever she needs help, God will be there. This is the city that we go to later on after we die. Francis of Assisi said, We die, we're born to eternal life. And this city is the eternal city. The book of Revelation describes it as being so big that it would go from Brownsville, Texas, 200 miles up into Canada and all the way out into the Pacific Ocean past the end of uh, California and then 1,500 miles straight up. That's how big this... You know, it's a cube. It's, a, it's an image of security. And yet all the 12 gates of the city are open all the time because we're free. God guards it. And now verse 4 is going to explain what he was saying about the mountains and the sea. Nations are in an uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice. The earth melts. It actually is a future prediction. He uttered his voice. The earth will melt. That's future. Have you read Second Peter 3? All the elements will melt away and be dissolved. This planet's going to turn into an inferno like a giant volcano. The earth is being stored up for fire, the prophet says. And so look in our lifetime. Nations in an uproar. Kingdoms fall. What kingdoms have fallen in your lifetime? Where is uh, Rhodesia? Where is Czechoslovakia? You know, these have changed. Zimbabwe is now, uh, used to be Rhodesia, and Czechoslovakia is now Bosnia and Herzegovina. You know, uh, the different kingdoms have been replaced even in our own lifetimes. Nations in an uproar, kingdoms fall. See, the earth can't be depended on. He lifts his voice. The earth will melt. God has said so. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. That's in here twice. That's a refrain. Now, here's how I know that when he was talking about mountains and the the ocean, he was really talking about kingdoms and human history. Because this next verse, verse 8, says, Come, And I wish there was a way that they could translate this word see. It's the Hebrew word chazah, which means to see as a prophetic vision. 
He's going to interpret for us what God has been talking about in this psalm. The mountains are really kingdoms. David, uh, Daniel tells us this in Daniel 2. The word mountain means kingdom. Isaiah chapter 2 also speaks of the mountain meaning kingdom. God's holy mountain is a kingdom. And the sea is human history. And so nations are in an uproar. Kingdoms fall. You know, everything's in chaos on this planet. When we look at the sea, we look at human history, it's always in chaos. But you know what happens when John's taken up into heaven in chapter 4 of Revelation? He sees the sea, and he says it's as smooth as crystal, clear as it can be. Because from God's perspective, human history is under total control. But from our perspective, it's just chaos. All these terrorists, all these buildings being destroyed, bombs being let off, marketplaces. They find the most crowded place to kill themselves and take as many with them as they can so they can have 72 virgins in the next life. I think they're going to get 72 Virginians, and I think they're going to be kicked half to death, <laughs> in my opinion. I think they misinterpreted it. He says, come and behold as, a vi as in a vision, as in a prophetic vision, the works of Yahweh, the desolations he's brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. This is a promise of God that one day there will be no more war. Isaiah chapter 2 says the same thing. They will, nations will not learn war anymore. It will be over. Isaiah chapter 9 says all the boots of all the warriors and all the garments with blood on them will be burned in the fire. And Zechariah says all the chariots and the implements of war will burn for seven years, which means total destruction of war, end to war. Wouldn't that be great to live in a peaceful place? When we go home, we'll be at peace. Revelation says all the great majesty of all the cultures of all the kings will go in to heaven with us. We'll have a vast complexity of peoples and nations, red, yellow, black, white, brown, all of us together, all of us getting along. I don't know if you ever thought about it, but God made us out of the dirt. And the colors, colors of dirt are also red, yellow, brown, white, and black. That's why we are. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear and burns the shields with fire. Everything's going to be destroyed, all the implements of war. God's going to make peace on the earth. And then he says... After he's made this promise that war will end, God says, Be still and know that I am God. That word, be still, is the Hebrew word, Rapha. It means to be healed. It means to recover from a wound. We need this, folks. We're in a rat race. We're busy going here and there, doing things all the time. 
we need a time when we can just sit down and relax. Right now, just relax your muscles. Don't fall over, but just just relax your muscles. Think about that. The word literally means relax. Relax and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. See, no matter how hard you work, God's still going to be exalted. If you just lie down and sleep, God's still going to be exalted. And then again, the Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. The Lord Almighty is actually a translation of the Hebrew Yahweh Tzavah Maybe you've read in, uh, in Romans where he says his name is the Lord Sabaoth. That's the Hebrew word Sabaoth, which means armies. God is the God of armies, the Lord of armies. He's the Lord of all the stars, the armies of the stars. He knows every one of them's names, trillions and trillions of them, and he knows their names. Relax. He says, and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Whether we do anything or not, God will be exalted. You know, I told you that the church is growing faster today than ever before in history. See, if we're not doing anything, God's still going to be exalted. His kingdom's still going to grow. We've got just a few minutes. If you have any questions or comments you want to make, I am definitely open to that at any time. It's about uh, nine minutes till eight, and I promised you you'd be out of here by eight o'clock. Hezekiah did build a... Uh, Okay, the question is, uh, there is a river that's under, is there a river that's under Jerusalem? And uh, that river has just been discovered. It was a tunnel dug by, from two different sides, and they met in the middle, and the, when the tunnel was discovered, there was Hebrew writing on the wall, and they examined it and said, this is where the two groups met for Hezekiah's tunnel. And he built this tunnel to make a river under the city so that if they were ever besieged by a foreign army, they would have water all the time. And that's what it's for. Uh, but in, uh, in this passage, it's not talking about the earthly Jerusalem. It's talking about the heavenly Jerusalem. He's predicting the future. Um, the Apostle Paul says the Jerusalem that is above is our mother. The earthly Jerusalem is filled with slaves. This is why there will never be peace. You know, people say pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And I think that's a good thing to do, but there will never be peace as long as the Arabs absolutely hate the Jews. It started with Abraham's eight sons, only one of them was the chosen promised son, Isaac. The other seven became jealous 
and they are the fathers of all the Arab nations. And when Ishmael was born, the first son of Abraham, God described him this way before he was born. He said, he'll be a wild ass of a man whose hand is against every man and every man's hand is against him. And if that's not a description of the Arab nations today, I don't know what is. You know, there are people there who desperately need the Lord. And amazingly, some of the Palestinians have come to Christ, and many of the Jews in Jerusalem have come to Christ. And if they could get together, they would, but there's a great wall between them that the Jews had built for protection. But you know what's going on over there. There's still chaos because the Arabs hate the Jews. They want to drive them out into the sea. They want to end the nation of Israel. Any other comments or questions? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, the fire that he burns the implements of war with. Uh, that fire could be God himself. Because the scripture says in Hebrews 12, verse 27, our God is consuming fire. The Bible says God is four things. God is spirit, John 4, 24. God is light, 1 John 1, 5 and 1 Timothy 6, 16. God is fire, I just told you about that one, and God is love, which is my favorite. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8 and 16, he says it twice. So God is those four essences, and those are called anarthrous nouns in Greek, which means there's no article there. It doesn't say God is the fire. It says God is fire in his own essence. He is love. He is spirit. He is uh, whatever I said the other one was. Um, light. That's what I said, light. Yeah. Yes, sir. You look like you have a question. Oh, I guess you don't. All right. Well, thank you so much for paying attention and for being here. It's a blessing to be with you all. Let's pray together. Father, I pray.